You're very welcome to episode 79 of The Shortlist. My name is Johnny Campbell. I'm your host for The Shortlist live show and podcast and CEO and co-founder of Social Talent. If you're listening to this live, you're very welcome. We welcome all chat contributions, comments, which you can post on YouTube or LinkedIn directly. If you're listening to the podcast, any references to articles or notes we make, we will post in the show notes. You can find out more about the show um, going by going to socialtalent.com forward slash the shortlist where you'll see a list of all our previous 78 shows and a list of our upcoming shows and you can find links to all those recordings but for today with show 79 we're going to be talking about covid and the rise of anti-asian sentiment as the world kind of grapple with the onset of the pandemic in early 20 it also quite disappointingly saw an increase in anti-asian sentiment associated with this and from the disproportionate representation of Southeast Asians on news stories regarding COVID to growing reports of verbal and physical abuse and even xenophobic scapegoating from political leaders on both sides of the Atlantic, it seemed like the virus almost afforded people the excuse of justification for outright racism. And COVID has shone a lot greater light on many issues in society. And this rise in kind of anti-Asian rhetoric is one that we believe here in the show deserves a lot more attention as of course has a massive impact on hiring and talent. Joining us on the show today to discuss this topic is Lucy Sheen. Lucy is an accomplished actor, playwright, digital artist and activist who recently contributed to the We Are Not Virus production with her piece entitled I Am Not a Virus, which I strongly recommend everyone watch. Lucy's here to talk with us about the dangers of lazy stereotyping, how historical attitudes have shaped this current upsurge in discrimination and what can be done to push the needle when it comes to improving and expanding Asian representation. Lucy, you're very welcome to the show. wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing with our guests a little bit about um, your professional uh, experience and, you know, how you became involved in advocating for this topic. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Um, yes, as you said, I'm an actor, writer and activist. I suppose in some senses I got into active activism if that's the thing, uh, quite late on in my career, um, which was sprung by um, an out, um, I suppose, notorious uh, production that was done by the RSC called The Orphan of Jow, um, a 17-strong cast, um, a play that is often referred to by academics and others as the Chinese Hamlet. Uh, amongst 17-strong cast, there were only three British East Asian actors. Um, and I think that was the straw that broke uh, the British East Asian actors and artists back. Um, and from that, because that campaign went global, uh, we, the people that were also like-minded, we realised that um, in terms of um, being a British minority, how we were perceived, uh, represented, engaged with within our own industry um, was pretty appalling and hasn't really, well, hadn't at that point really changed since I had um, gone to drama school and graduated in the late 70s uh, to whenever, that, that was 2013, which is pretty horrific, which is, I suppose what started my my very vocal um, reaction and um, sort of advocacy and activism with regard to how people like myself are seen and represented in our culture. 
I want to tap into that representation and that culture piece because we talked a couple of weeks ago with Susan Vallage from NBC Universal where we initially dabbled in that topic of the role of mass media and its influence on wider society and culture. And, you know, I guess an example you gave there where you have uh, a play purporting to represent a certain culture where actually in truth only being delivered by individuals, uh, extreme minority of individuals even representing that culture just, you know, is... is is evidence of, of the challenge that's there and has been there for a long time. But I want to focus on maybe the last couple of years in particular, because it's rather than getting, getting better, you, you could argue it's accelerated and got worse. And I want to point to an article um, that was published recently on iNews, Lucy, mm -hmm. which had the title of Anti-Asian Hate Speech Online Rises by, and this is not incorrect, 1,662%. That's 1,662% during COVID pandemic, new study finds. That's by Isabel uh, Chapirska on iNews. We'll share the article live and in the show notes there. Um, this is a kind of rather depressing piece, but it feels unfortunately true. And it shows evidence when they examined, you know, uh, millions of, of online conversations on the platforms we're all very familiar with. And they found this explosion of, um, of ethnicity-based hate speech, particularly peaking in March as the pandemic, uh, March 2020, as the pandemic began to spread. And then it links it to, let's say, in the UK's context, uh, an increase uh, in anti-Asian hate crimes in London of 80% a couple of months after that. It, it makes this link between, you know, what happens online and this hate speech and then how mm -hmm. it translates into the real world in a negative way. Can you share with me your thoughts on this or your personal experiences, if you have them relating to what this article claims has happened since the pandemic broke out? I mean, I think in, in, in broad brushstrokes, uh, the article is, 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 is very true. I mean, I suppose for anybody of East or Southeast Asian heritage, um, it's not a surprise. And the not wanting to be disingenuous but the shock horror of you know sort of an explosion of anti-asian feeling well for us that anti-asian feeling has never gone away i mean i think it dips it, it like many things there is a a, a plateauing um but throughout my uh, lifetime here uh, which is uh, 50 years plus, um, that kind of uh, hatred, racism, uh, violence has has always been uh, part of my life, um, particularly um, in my younger years. So you're talking about 60s and 70s. Attitudes were very, very different. The makeup of, of, of Britain was, was particularly very dif different in, in terms of the, the numbers of people, non-white faces that you actually saw, and particularly um, faces of, uh, of East Asian um, features. So that's never gone away. So for us, that's no surprise. I suppose what was the shocker was how quickly that, um, that sort of uh, 
uh, uh, hate speech and, and, and violence sort of surged. And I think off the back of, I'm going to mention it, Brexit um, and the likes of Farage and that type of sentiment, that you know, sort of whipping up of xenophobia, um, which is always a knee, I think, a knee-jerk reaction to concerns of foreignness or being overrun. And it is the 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 thought process that allows you to kind of like introduce immigration and, and, and you know, draconian border controls um, in a need to kind of like curtail that mobility of, I think, uh, foreignness, which is kind of like quite um, odd considering that, you know, up until that point we had been part of the EU, we had flee, you know, movement across Europe, which everybody wanted and and now most people i think are um uh really regressing that we don't have but hey so i think that goes hand in hand and it, it was no surprise but a shock of that the 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 level and the vitriol and the actual um i suppose uh heat that was behind that i mean before we went into lockdown i was rehearsing a show um in in the city and uh i basically got told to f off home and take my effing disease with me um and the guy who did it to me whispered in my ear so he which was a shocker he made a choice to do that because there are other people on the bus because he knew i think that if he said something like that somebody may have commented or i would like to think that somebody would have commented and that was in february so that was already bubbling, I think, along with, you know, sort of, as I've said, uh, the whip up in, you know, sort of so-called nationalism uh, and Brexit, Brexitism and, and all the rest of that. So that was already building. Um, I mean, the article also, you know, sort of uh, also uh, refers to, I think it's Liam Hackett saying that a lot of the terms that were being used were new. I would beg to differ. They may have been couched in a very different way, but disease and, and associating that with people of East Asian uh, heritage has been something that's been around since the 1800s. That's not new. It has always been laid upon people from East, East and Southeast Asia that we are somehow diseased um, and less than desirable. Uh, the men are emasculated and, you know, sort of fiends and, and run opium dens and women uh, are oriental. Women are super sexualized, hypersexualized, um, um, and therefore, you know, sort of also at one point wanting to be desired, but also to be, to be shunned. So this is nothing new for us. This is a continuation of something which is, which is very old. Um, so I think it maybe is a shocker to the, the wider community um, in Britain to wake up and realise that this is, you know, sort of a problem. This is yet another community that has suffered to a certain extent in silence because we have been ignored and not, and it's easy for us to be ignored because we have never fully, I don't think, been accepted. Um, and that is partly, I think, uh, we have to take some responsibility for that uh, as much as the wider society does. But 
you know, sort of in this day and age where I think we have all um, hoodwinked ourselves into at a point to a certain point before the pandemic that we had kind of like gotten rid of you know sort of most of the racism and you know we were getting to a, a point where we were going into the equality diversity you know sort of um way of way of thinking i think it's a shocker for any sort of society to realize that actually we haven't gone as far as we thought we had and if any in some senses we are going backwards can i ask you lucy before we mm -hmm. came on air we had a chat around the differences between anti-asian sentiment in different parts of the world and we for example mm -hmm. contrasted the uk and the us and, and you touched on some subjects i'm keen for you to explore further which were even just down to definitions of you know, we, you know you're in the uk you know references to different um different parts of asia where you're from might be different mm -hmm. to the us and that there are there, there are different different ways that it's expressed. I wonder, could you walk walk me through for our audience and we've audience from different parts mm -hmm. of the world, just to explain to what's different and what's the same. Um, well, in terms of um, how we identify or, or identify ourselves, um, if I say Asian in the UK, then we are predominantly, particularly in my industry. It, that refers to the subcontinent of India. I'm not, therefore, for a lot of people, I'm not Asian, which mm. is nuts, you know. Um, in the States, Asian means the continent of Asia, which is a, a broad, a, you know, it's the, the largest continent on the planet. So that's, that is a very, very wide spread of um, differing countries and peoples and cultures, etc. Whereas over here, it's... Uh, very specific to the subcontinent of India. Um, so I have to, uh, to explain, I have to say that I am of East, I'm actually of East Asian and Southeast Asian heritage. There is a, di a differentiation there. Um, and a, a, as a friend of mine once said, you know, sort of um, in terms of being sort of recognized, it seems that only countries that play cricket in the empire are, are afforded that, that generosity. And obviously, you know, I, I don't think many um, East Asian people do play cricket. I don't know. I, I, I may be pr proven wrong. Um, so there is that. Um, and I think it is a way, it, it, I'm sure um, some people may disagree, but it is, it is that colonization, it is divide and rule, you know, sort of. So that is a part of the empire that was, was ruled, that was governed very much so which will be allowed into the club of being you know sort of a part of the british empire whereas obviously china was never subjugated in that sense and all the british and all that the british managed to get out of that was hong kong which you know sort of an outpost which has grown into what it has but um and i think that influences has very much what a part of the influence on on how the widest uh, white society has always viewed uh, people from East and, and, and Southeast Asia. And also in, in terms of the migration or, or people coming uh, from East Asia to the UK um, and, and sort of uh, settling, the, it was very much outside of 
the structure, the main structure of, of, of British society, whereas in America, you know, the, the how um, the Chinese and East Asians were sort of employed, they became part of the infrastructure, building the railroads, you know, sort of sort of mining. They became part of of actually the fabric of that country, whether, you know, sort of the, the wider white populace like that or not. So it's a very different, uh, you know, sort of foray, whereas a lot of, um, or many, not all, but many of the people that initially came over were from a particular, um, I would say, a particular um, strata in in uh, the Chinese Chinese society themselves because they were able to come over here. Um, many of them came over here to study uh, in universities and mm. then went back. Um, so it, it, it's quite interesting. Had we uh, had East Asians come over and had they um, sort of contributed to the fabric had become miners or steel workers or I think our sort of uh, integration or the way that we are our view would be very different mm. that's not to say that there wouldn't be people who would still be prejudicial and racist um, but I think our trajectory would be very different so we have always been sort of the sojourners the outsiders the foreigners um, and it's particularly noticeable when you get, you know, sort of past the end of the First World War and the lack of recognition of, of you know, sort of the Chinese Labour Corps and uh, the thousands that, that, that perished. Um, and again, that is repeated, you know, and there were many deportations after that. And then again, that is repeated after the, the Second World War when there was the forced repatriation of um, many uh, Chinese merchant seamen um in secrecy uh so it is something it is uh, an attitude that has continued to sort of thrive in this country although obviously in the states there was the exclusion act um which was you know sort of barred uh, sort of uh, asians from or tried to stop them from becoming part of you know sort of the mainstream society um and an addendum to that, you know, sort of the Aliens Act uh, that affected uh, sort of uh, East Asians in, in, in the UK, I think was still in operation until the mid 70s. So if a, a white woman had married uh, a Chinese um, merchant seaman or, or, or person from East Asia, they lost their citizenship and had to report to the local police stations. Wow. Um, and I find that, you know, incredible that that was still in operation. I mean, I don't know how heavily that was enforced, but mm. it was still in operation. So that kind of attitude, you know, sort of, um, I can't, obviously, I'm not an expert in, in terms of what happened, uh, happens in, in America. But here, that kind of attitude is, is still there. I mean, I, 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 you know, so... I, I, I was going to ask you about the media, right? Just generally, because you know, as an actor and writer, you know, um, you work in the world of the media, and, and you mentioned obviously it's kind of your, the roots of your call it active activism came from your experience in the media. Um, the media can can be very harmful uh, in how it misrepresents cultures and, and backgrounds. 
uh, but it also can have a great power when it does it right. Mm-hmm. I wanted to point to some uh, something that was kind of published last month in Time, when uh, mm-hmm. a kind of big media brand, if you like, uh, going at that kind of younger generation, uh, Sesame Street, uh, welcomed its first, and actually was stunned to hear it's actually only its first after like 51 or 52 mm-hmm. years, Asian American puppet. And uh, I think this the the the, the puppets themselves uh, debuted on Thanksgiving Day on a special. Uh, and the, the puppet was 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 Chi Young, and uh, the article talks about how, you know, again, it was there was a sensitivity to this in terms of you know, uh, great deal of thought going into it that it's specifically a Korean American um, puppet. They didn't want a character that was to your point Pan Asian because Pan Asian kind of means nothing, and doesn't identify with any particular community. Uh, and there isn't a Pan Asian; it's the biggest continent in the world, right? So how can you have it's like there's not a Pan European, there really isn't a Pan American. <laughs> There certainly isn't a pan-asian kind of uh, uh, ethnicity or culture um you know this is this is a, a character that's going into a, an influential children's program um to try and i guess at, at a young age uh, normalize um uh, different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities you know when you see something like this lucy do you see it as this great it's a positive step forward do you see it as oh this is like too little too late do you see it as you know uh, a big thing, a small thing, a distraction. What are your thoughts on, on initiatives like this? I mean, I could be meanie mouthed and say it is too little too I don't think it is too little too late. It's too late, possibly, but at least it's happening. Um, and I think it's, you know, sort of the the position that Sesame Street holds, not just in America, but across the globe. I think it's phenomenal. Um, and being very specific, I think, is amazing. Um, and I applaud it. It should have happened a lot sooner, you know, from that, from my point of view. Um, but it's happening. Um, and I, I think anything, particularly um, when you are talking about the younger generations, you know, that we, we, we hear constantly, you know, that children aren't, racist or prejudicial they learn that behavior from their environment from their sadly some sometimes their nearest and dearest so i think it's it's incredibly important that those that type of um reframing how we engage and how we see people who don't necessarily look like us for whatever reason I think it's incredibly important. It's it is education in in the best possible ways, and it's also entertainment. Now, if you if you take that, what I think is brilliant example, um, and and take my reservations away from it, it should have happened earlier. And you look at what this country tried to do not uh, too long ago, which was a, a commission from uh, children's. Uh, um, children's television cbbc's which was a uh, a program which was going to be set uh, in a uh, a restaurant um about a, a british east asian family um and that was basically uh written by an all white uh writing group they had employed a cultural consultant, somebody of British East Asian heritage, um, but uh, failed to take any notice of uh, the concerns that, that particular person 
brought to them when uh, the scripts were put in front. So we ended up with things like uh, Chinese dumplings being put in an oven to be baked, um, another character coining another one, a ching chong. Now, this is supposed to be going out to children. And yet, you know, sort of the BBC and the people that they commissioned didn't see anything wrong with what was happening, A, predominantly because they were white, they had no experience of that. As a writer, I do subscribe to the fact that you should be able to write about anything that you want, but there is a caveat to that. You have to do your due diligence, as you would with anything. You know, if I, as a writer of colour, decided to write a show or a play or a screenplay set in the First World War and had people dressed in uniforms from the Second World War, I'd be hung, drawn and quartered. Mm. And quite rightly so. It shows my lack of respect, my lack of understanding of that that subject matter, just superficially. And yet when it comes to things like this, particularly when it comes to people of East and Southeast Asian heritage here in the UK, it doesn't seem to matter. And that is alarming and that is very upsetting because a similar setup had it, to do be to do with uh, people from the black African Caribbean community in the UK, if they tried that, it would not, that would have been shut down very, very quickly. The fact that it got as far as it did and it took somebody to basically essentially whistleblow and for us then to have to go on social media to actually get that halted I think says an awful lot about how the wider society and those in power, particularly in the industry that I work in, view or don't view British East and Southeast Asians. I think there's you know you got an excellent point in terms of not all not all minority communities are treated equally. Um, in terms of you know there are flavors of the month. There are there are communities that as time moves on in different parts of the world, get more priority over others. And that's not to take away from the communities that are being prioritized and being treated fairly and mm -hmm. more equitably. That's that, that that should be the way it is. It's just not equitable across the world. Uh, we talk about media, you know, we, we had, I mentioned, obviously we had Susan from NBC Universal a couple of weeks ago and we talked about characters in media and we, we started talking about characters in front of the ca camera. And she mentioned, um, the actress Marley Matlin many years ago, who was kind of one of the first mainstream actresses who was deaf to be represented mm -hmm. in TV and media. Uh, Children of a Lesser God, I think, was the first the big movie yeah. that she broke out in. And it kind of was that, it was like, wow, but then it was literally only Marley Matlin booked for every mm. single acting gig that required a deaf actor. And then, you know, you see today Sandra Oh is doing amazing work um, uh, as an amazing American actress uh, around the world. But I think there's a danger of, Sandra O oh being literally the only person that they can cast in mm -hmm. that role and they'll go to her with everything. I, I, to me, I didn't see, you know, when you see a character playing the stereotype of the ethnicity or, or else the ethnicity or background is critical to the character, I think it's not huge progress. Whereas I, I, I recall watching um, earlier this year, uh, Promising Young Woman, the, the movie, and Laverne Cox plays a character in that. And the character is the main uh, main actor's best friend in, in the store she works in. 
and Laverne Cox um, as a trans uh, uh, actor, the, the, that was irrelevant to the role, never mentioned, mm. never came up. And I, I saw it as a kind of one of those small moments in Hollywood where it was like, you've cast a trans actor in a role that could have been anybody, but you cast her because mm. she's fantastic as an actor and not because she's, let's say, deaf or Asian American or uh, mm. trans. And I think it's, to me, you know, when you put a character in who, and I imagine the Sesame Street thing, they may, you know, the character's role is to ham up, not ham up, but express upon the audience, you know, the culture of Asian Americans and different backgrounds are Korean American. And I, I almost love them just to be not mentioning their background to a certain degree because, you know, just have representation in roles about, you know, she's the teacher mm -hmm. or she's the, you know, she's the the doctor and, and less about the character. I don't know if that, resonates with you about maybe some of these these roles it, it does in an ideal world where the level where the playing field is level but it isn't uh, yeah. particularly in i mean obviously i can only in some senses really speak for the uk and it i, I think it's it, it's an argument that is always regurgitated when people are uh, whatever you know sort of the discrepancy is when people talk about you know sort of uh, uh, sort of diversity ethnicity and and you know sort of um, black characters being played by black actors um, and you know sort of Asian characters not being whitewashed so that uh, white actors can can play them. I mean the fact of the matter is both here and in the states a white actor can play absolutely anything and everything and nobody bats an eyelid. Whereas if you put the the boot on the other foot, a black actor or an Asian American actor or a British East Asian actor or Southeast Asian actor playing something that is outside that lane, usually is there is a comment. There is, you know, sort of why are they doing that? It's because it is assumed, you know, sort of that somehow you're making a political point, even if that's with a small p. Yes, ideally, it shouldn't matter. You should be able to, you know, cast whomever you, you want and colour, you know, sort of background, ability, disability shouldn't shouldn't matter. But unfortunately, it does because we are not to the point where that we haven't gotten to that point yet because we're still being restricted. Uh, you know, people uh, of colour, people of difference, you know, sort of... Who are you know seen differently, uh, reacted to differently, are still being curtailed in what it is how they are perceived because we are not normalised. You know, sort of talking about you know sort of Sandro and and Killing Eve, which was I, I, I loved, but even then, you know, sort of in that show, they couldn't not avoid having you know sort of I think it was the the the, the Chinese diplomat. Uh, sort of indulging in some deviant sexual behavior mm. and it's a long <clears throat> throwback to the as i was talking mm. about this idea that you know sort of east asians are somehow kind of like miscreants and deviants mm. and it's still being regurgitated and yes there is very much a weird thing particularly again i i think it sort of plays out differently in the states but over here very much so if you're british east or southeast asian there can only be one in mm. any one drama. If you have mm. two, then yeah, maybe. 
but even if you have the one invariably the there is a thing that they will be the white sidekick you know they're they're mm. supporting a white narrative it's not we are not the center of our own narratives even if the show or or the plot is about east asians or southeast asians like like you know sort of somehow that is manipulated because it, it it's a viewpoint and if you don't have people from you know those heritages overseeing what's happening and actually understanding that viewpoint then that's not going to change so it it does come back to you know sort of not only representation that is visual but the representation behind the camera or backstage is equally important can, can i ask lucy what are your thoughts about you know uh, the the popularity popularity of a show like Squid Games, right? Um, mm -hmm. Korean production uh, on Netflix that's just become global. That you see yeah. the world watching, you know, a Southeast Asian show essentially making it Netflix mm. this biggest success, right? Um, and that you know, like that kind of a show, like one is it? A, I know it's it, it's not about you know being Southeast Asian it's universal it's just about yeah. human nature and stuff mm -hmm. um whether you're a fan of the show or not but do you think it's important that like maybe maybe distributors like Netflix are getting our green lighting thing are getting squid games out there and it becoming the most popular thing on TV which hmm. and just a, the most popular show if I'm not mistaken before that for Netflix I think was Bridgerton which again was mm -hmm. you know a, a weird one because it it, it it recast what would have been a very white Victorian looking mm -hmm. program and it recast it with a, a cast of characters that were from everywhere and didn't mention it. You know, does the, is it showing that there's a real demand for this, but actually the system doesn't get these oh, yeah. things made? Absolutely. And it's interesting that it, it's people like Netflix, Amazon and Apple that are actually doing this. It's not the BBC Channel 5, ITV, really. I mean, they do occasionally do stuff, but, you know, the BBC is as a public broadcaster that is funded by the British public and the government. They, in my mind, should be doing the things like that, like Bridgerton. They should be doing, you know, sort of squid games or, you know, sort of looking into, uh, you know, sort of outsourcing but they're not, and you have to question why. Hmm. Why are they not doing it? I mean, Sky, to a certain extent, is doing, you know, sort of, um, obviously it's not uh, funded, you know, so to, in some senses, uh, privately you can do what you want, but at the end of the day, I think seeing things like Squid Game, seeing things like Bridgerton, seeing, you know, sort of uh, Hollywood films like, well, uh, the farewell, um, you know, sort of um, crazy rich Asians. It shows that people will bump, put bums on seats. They will pay to go and see that, which has always been a mis misnomer or one of the excuses before that is, oh well, we don't know how that would sell. We're not, we're not quite sure how the the wider public would take it. Well, you have your answer, you know, mm. but. I don't see any any real movement from the very production houses that there should be. I don't see any of that going. And I have to ask myself, what is the what is the the what is holding those companies back from doing that? You know, and 
some will say, but we've got schemes in place. And I think most artists of East and Southeast Asian heritage or, or Black heritage or, or whatever are sick of being siphoned off into schemes. We don't need schemes. Mm. We need people to invest. We need people to commission. We need mm. people to cast. We need people to hire. There are one or two companies that are actually doing it. But I think, you know, so it's interesting. It's conspicuous by its absence, the companies that are not at the head of actually suing for greater diversity and equality and inclusion. And it should it, basically it should be inclusion. Forget the other two. I think they're red herrings. But I think you're right in terms of like the power is shifting. Like you look at, you know, Marvel come out with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings as a, as a big mm -hmm. production, right? Which is, you know, again, progressive and there's good in jokes in there about the Asian American experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started, you know, seeing that, you know, Tencent productions uh, out of China were, you know, have been heavily investing in the American studio complex for the last 10 years. And you know they have a they have an agenda. They want to basically have more more um, more representation of their home mm. markets, uh, including actors and production staff and set and mm. where these things are set. And you've seen an increasing amount of you know mainstream movies you know have an angle based in China or based somewhere in Southeast Asia mm. and more characters and more production teams working on that in a positive way because the money dictates this. And you look at the UK. I, I saw a presentation last last week by Benedict Evans at Slush in Helsinki where. He looked at media in the UK and showed that in, I think, 18 to 29-year-olds, the media consumption of Netflix plus, plus YouTube is, is one and a half times all other media broadcasters and sources put mm. together. So your BBC, your ITV, your other different places. Yeah. It's like, you know, BBC, uh, sorry, YouTube and Netflix dominate what, what mm. the, um, you know, growing society uh, are influenced mm -hmm. by. So your point around like you know, we, we're not going to be able to rely on the bbc and, and itv and these broadcasters no. probably because they're not going to exist as we know it because no. the, the users go where they get entertained where there's quality production mm -hmm. and 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 the growing ones are are arguably much more diverse more international in yeah. their approach and um, they just let good content go you know and, and if, it, if, it, mm. if it if it kicks off you know um then it kicks off but but that's 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 kind of i think you are seeing more of it in, in mass media. And that's what I want to maybe just kind of bring it to a kind of connection to talent, Lucy. You know, how important is it that the the media world continue or, or accelerate their approach to, to bringing more representation of, of uh, East Asian or Asian uh, culture into uh, the, the studio system, into TV programs, you know, more, more, what would be called foreign language to the English-speaking people, uh, programs with, you know, productions that are made in, the, in different countries, sold for global audiences that aren't about their, their, their culture. Do you think that that will have an oversized impact on how, you know, the person on the street is treated, the person in their job is treated, the person going for an interview is treated? I would say it doesn't because you're feeding into things that uh, arguments as to particularly here i don't know whether i'm assuming there are similar or have been similar arguments over in the states about ethnicity um and authenticity something like the squid games is accepted because it's 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 you know sort of it's authentic 
you know, it's authentic. And, and therefore there is a, an acceptance of that as a TV program, much as one would accept a foreign language film. Now, something very peculiar happens when you make something in this country and it's 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 British in the widest sense, because British then takes on a whole other kind of like conundrum of things um, for which, to a certain extent, I would say that British East Asians are at the bottom of the recognised pile of British minorities. And therefore, you somehow sacrifice your authenticity of being of East or Southeast Asian heritage. Therefore, you can't possibly play that role. We have to go abroad and find uh, a Korean or Chinese or Asian American actress, actor to come and do this. Or... You can only have one. Mm. So there are a handful of people who have made it up the ladder to be able to be considered mm. to be British East Asian or East Asian or Southeast Asian enough to be able to mm. appear in a British drama as such. It's infuriating. Mm. And that's no disrespect to, to the people who've met the actors who've managed to make it because it's a hard road. There is a certain amount of luck in there, etc., as there is for any actor. But we are constantly being told you are not authentic enough mm. or you're too authentic, therefore you can't play this. And it's a lack of normalisation, and I hate that word, or a lack of actually people being seen as normal human beings that do mundane jobs mm. and, and not being constantly viewed as this. Mm. and how that dictates what you can and cannot do in a fictionalised drama, which is insane. But I think it's a reflection of how particularly East, Asia, East and Southeast Asians are still viewed in British society, not just, you know, sort of on a popular, on um, you know, sort of the, the popular front, but actually in the hierarchy, even into government how we are viewed, how we are engaged with, you know, sort of the fact that, you know, so the few politicians of colour are still viewed, even to this day, you know, sort of one black British MP was mistaken as a cleaner. And we're not talking 20 years ago, we are talking not that long ago. Another MP, you know, sort of was uh, basically... To, you know, sort of was 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 not going to be allowed into the building because she's of East Asian appearance. Mm. What does that say about our society if our our seat of government is not actually able to to take on board the fact that that the the face that the actual composition of British society is by its very nature, whether we like it or not, diverse. And that stems I, from empire and colonialism, yeah. you know. It's, it's, it, you know. For me, even just it's an education in terms of perspective on, I think what you're saying, what I'm hearing is that there's a sense of what is British and there's a sense of what is Asian or Southeast Asian. But when you try mm -hmm. to be British and you look Southeast Asian, that, that just, that doesn't compute with normal, no. let's say British society or whatever society it is. And or for that's, that's, mm -hmm. that intersection is always the worst marginalization because 
you know, you don't fit in either category. We're not going to cast you as a British person. We're not going to cast you as Southeast Asian because mm -hmm. you're too British. And it's like you live in this no man's world and no person's world where exactly, yeah, no, mm. no, no one's advocating for you. Yeah, I think it's particularly galling for people of mixed heritage as well, mm. because th there is. I mean, I have a. a a sense of that because my background is I'm a transracial adoptee so I'm neither one thing nor the other so I understand very much where people who are of mixed uh, race heritages they are in this no man's land of not being particularly one uh, recognized by mm. one half of their culture or the other half of their culture and until you know sort of we again sort of start introducing and pushing these 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 people into our narratives and accepting that these people exist because we do we are not unicorns we do exist uh, we're not mythical you know sort of uh, um then it's all it, it continues to be hard for for people to break through um which is in, insane in this day and age i think I want to thank you for shining a light on the complexities. And there are complex complexities of this this issue of the challenge in society, the challenge in workplaces, the challenge in media. Um, I do hope that's given a lot of food for thought for for our listeners uh, and audience today. And you know, uh, there'll be more consideration to the complexities of the different cultures that we're trying to represent and hire from, and what our own biases say about ourselves in terms of how we approach different cultures. And Lucy, can I ask you maybe if you don't mind to conclude? as we do at every show, um, with a piece of advice you, you'd like to share with our audience you think would would um, uh, be particularly helpful, maybe perhaps around this topic or perhaps advice you just generally have been, off, been offered yourself during your career or you've managed to kind of hone yourself from your own experiences. What advice can you leave us with today? I mean, I think the advice coming from my industry is that, yeah, advice is just you, we need to be open we need to engage more and uh i think it's for yeah i mean we all have our own biases but i think we need to check those very carefully um so just be open just be winning um and try you never know you may find the next whatever it is whatever industry you're in who knows? Lucy, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your insights and thoughts and stories. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I can't wait to see your new project as it hopefully comes out in the new year. But if folks want to find out more about your projects and your work, where can they go, Lucy? Um, they can go to uh, my website, which is www.lucysheen.com. Um, I'm on social, uh, social media for my sins um twitter uh lucy sheen and insta again lucy sheen so hit me up and that's thank lucy with a y sheen double e and thanks so much for joining yeah. us take care lucy thank you. and thank you for joining us and listening to this week's show uh, or watching this week's show hopefully that's given you some insight and opened your mind come back next week show number 80 um myself and my colleague holly are going to be going back through 2021 um to really dig into the nearly 50 shows we've broadcast this year to understand what advice have we been given what are the themes to the advice what are some of the best
pieces of advice in retrospect that this year's um, participants and guests have shared with us. So please join us for that. Hopefully there'll be tons of tips, tons of advice to remember, to go back on, see which pieces of advice you took during the year and perhaps you can bring into 2022. That's going to be broadcast live 15th of December, 4 p.m. UK Ireland time. That's 11 a.m. on the East Coast of the US, 8 a.m. on the West Coast. Or you can find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your good podcast next Wednesday evening. But do join us live on YouTube or LinkedIn if you'd like to join the conversation and perhaps share your advice with us as well. Until then, take care. And thanks for listening. 